Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I am your host. And today I have Paul Nadeau on the show and he is coming in from the great city of Toronto, Canada. So this guy has an amazing story. Make sure you do two things. Number one, I want you to share this out. And number two, I want you to stay with us because we're coming back with Paul Nadeau. We are back. Let me bring Paul on to the show here. Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Ken. Always nice to see you, and it's great to be here. Glad to have you here, man. We um, we met on Clubhouse. Yes, we did. <laughs> a while back. I don't even go to Clubhouse anymore. <laughs> you know, it, it's really interesting to see that the the... I love Clubhouse, as you know, and yeah. in the very beginning, it came at a time where people really needed connection. Yeah. And what we've seen is that there are some from the original uh, group, the January 2020 yeah. group that are still there, but many people have left. Life I, goes on. It's still on my phone. I just don't. Honestly, I it, it's. Um, there's a lot of pontificators. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we'll just, we'll just leave it at that how about that let's not be negative right. so um ben gay the third is joining us ben it's good to see you brother um so so paul i started this it's been over four years ago now and it was literally to help people have a breakthrough in life um, I think we all get stuck and some people get stuck and stay stuck and don't know how to get unstuck. And and I, I really believe that there's power in telling our stories, right? So so start with where you were born and raised. Talk about that. You got it. And I love the the premise. It's true. A lot of people get stuck and we do need a breakthrough from time to time. I was born in uh, a place called Oshawa, Ontario, which is about a 45-minute drive from Toronto, Canada, which is where I live now. And uh, I, you know, my father was a very abusive alcoholic, and he was a very tortured man. So as a result, we were severely abused. Um, I, I, I could tell you things from my past that would make your hair curl. And uh, yeah, to start my, my, the life that I had in the very beginning was a very, very tough life. And uh, yeah. I can go on from there if you want. But I'll Yeah, yeah, sure. And I, I can relate to all of that, by the way. So, um, so, so talk about, cause I know it's a little bit different in Canada than here, the, the, the university college thing, I, I, you know, but Talk about like when you were growing up, um, how do I put this? I think that, that our, our childhood 
has a tendency of pushing us in the direction that we end up going as an adult. So when, when I say that, what are some of the things or people or events or places that, that, um, that come to mind for you when, when I say, you know, what from childhood pushed you in the direction that you go, that you, you, you're in now? Okay. And that's a, that's a good question. For me, uh, as I mentioned, uh, I got a lot of beatings from my father and they were pretty severe. I remember when I was about seven years old, after a beating, I was on the ground looking up at my dad and uh, thinking to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to be a policeman so I can arrest you and people like you. And that was the thought that I got at the yeah. age of seven. And I, I really believed I would become a police officer because I wanted to arrest him. Uh, my life, uh, you know, I was a troubled kid too. I, the only place I could act out was actually in school. And I did. And I was a troublemaker in school, in grade school. Yeah. And I was very disruptive. And I used to get uh, straps and spankings and the whole works back then. Back in the 60s, that could happen. Yeah. I remember, uh, you know, just being that bullied kid because I was bullied and I, I just wasn't, I wasn't amounting to anything because I didn't believe in myself, Ken. And the problem was when you don't believe in yourself, you're, you're, <laughs> you're really stuck. And, yeah. and so I, in grade seven, I started to like girls. And of course, uh, you know, I started to look at myself a little bit differently. And I remember on one occasion, this one teacher he announced to the entire classroom, he said, you know, we're going to have a test next week. And I expect everybody to pass except for you, Nado. I already know you're going to fail. Wow. Yeah. And that was a slap in my face like I'd never felt before other than at the hands of my father. But it, it just kind of, I felt so humiliated for the first time. I mean, I'd done other things before, but this, for some reason, it just shook me to the bone. And I remember going back home and, and locking myself in my room and basically crying all weekend. But I did something that weekend that I'd never done before. I really tried to study. When I say tried to study, I'd never really studied before. My mother would try to get me to study, but it wouldn't sink. So I went through the notes and, and did the best I possibly could. The following week when I wrote that test, Ken, I, I had uh, two voices in my head. I had the one that said, you're going to fail. And, yeah. you know, so why even try? And the other one say, no, you, you kind of know this stuff. The yeah. answer, you know this answer. And so I had these competing voices in my head. I wrote the test. And a couple of days later, as was customary in this particular teacher's class, he would grade the, the students. And then he would call the student with the lowest grade to the front of the class to pick up their picture, uh, their paper. And it was the walk of shame for me because I was always the first one to be called. Wow. I'd get below 50%. And I was the first one to jump up and walk up and pick up my paper. So this occasion, he started to call names. And I wasn't called at the first. And I wasn't called second. I wasn't called 10th. When he got halfway through the class, a lot of the students were looking back at me going like, <laughs> what's <laughs> what that? happened? And I'm going, I have no idea. And those two voices in my head, Ken, were talking and one was shouting, saying, he's going to humiliate you like you've never been humiliated before. And the other one said, no, 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 hang on. You did okay. And I was the second last to be called. I wow. had the second, I know, I know. And wow. that, was a, that was a pivot moment for me 
yeah. where I actually started to believe in myself. And from that point on, I started to apply myself and my behavior changed because I started to believe that I could do something and amount yeah. to something. So uh, that's that was the defining moment for me. My father killed himself when I was 17. He killed himself with the same rifle that he had killed Santa Claus with when I was about eight. And wow. uh, I never got to arrest him, obviously, but I did become a police officer. So going back to your original question, um, what events really got me to where I am today was my father and that teacher. Uh, I, I attribute both to them. And, you know, a lot of people think that things happen to you, mm -hmm. like the abuse that I suffered happened to me. Mm -hmm. It also happened for me. Amen. Because when I look back at it, Ken, had it not been for my father's abuse, I wouldn't have become a police officer, a detective, a hostage negotiator, international peacekeeper. Those things would not have Wait, happened. wait, you're a police officer? I was a police officer. Okay, I got to go. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know a lot of your viewers are probably shut it down. Look, Joe, I, Joe Ingram's on here. You know Joe, don't you? I do, I do. Hey, Joe. <laughs> uh, so, 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 Paul, I, um, gosh, I, I, wow, some very, very similar things, man. I, I ended up dropping out of high school because of a lot of things, right? And, and, and I had a teacher tell me I'd never amount to anything, but I've, I've written seven books and she's written zero. So, you know, um, I love what you just said, though, about things happening for you and not to you. So at, at 17, your father killed himself. Um, I, I have a kind of a brutal question, not a brutal, but a, a, a straightforward question. Did it crush you? Did it hurt? It, um, he had tried about uh, a month earlier and I had found him, uh, in his residence with the rifle beside him. He had passed out. Um, and, wow. uh, the bullet was jammed in the rifle when it happened the second time I wasn't there. Um, but it didn't affect me until I was in church with the casket was closed. And it was at that time that it kind of broke me, um, mm. because you know, although you suffer at the hands of an abusive parent, you still love that parent. Yeah. And for me, just seeing the casket and knowing that he was gone, that affected me. Uh, but, uh, you know, you carry on. No matter what the circumstances are, you carry on. And, and uh, I remember just breaking down in the church at the funeral. Yeah, probably angry in many, many different ways. Very much, very yeah. much, yeah. So, <clears throat> um, while that's a huge life um, shift at 17 years old, and and um, and by the way, thank you for your service. I I I I have a lot of law enforcement friends. So, um, so. At 17, this happens. You're in high school still, I'm assuming. I am, yeah. Um, what? Where did things go from there for you? Well, I had developed, like since that incident in grade seven, and, and the number seven plays a significant role in my life. You know, like at, at seven years of age was when I decided to become a police officer. At 17, 
you know, like my father kills himself. And seven years after I joined the police department, I became a detective. But wow. uh, at the age that my father killed himself, I had developed a confidence in myself from that event in grade seven. I started to believe in myself and I really took that seriously. So I knew how to communicate with people, how to talk with older people, because yeah. my father sent me out when I was a child to actually find a job so I could pay room and board. And I, had to, yes, I developed wow. a confidence to, uh, to talk to anybody. So I had jobs. I had my first car when I turned 16. I had money in the bank. So I was really moving forward with this confidence in my life. And so those, those years in high school were fantastic. I, I felt like I, I had really accomplished a lot and I, I developed a lot too. So it was, uh, it was great. I became an actor in, in uh, high school and I loved that. And I did some film and television since then. And I'm still involved in that. So there were so many good things were happening in high school. Did you go to, I know they call, do they call it university there, right? The we have universities and colleges and I went to a college uh, to take a law enforcement course. When I okay. turned 19, I, I went to a college, a community college in, in Toronto okay. and uh, took a law enforcement uh, course for two years. I felt that that would help me get onto the police uh, department. I don't think it, it, it helped, but it certainly didn't hurt. Well, now down here, at least, and I know in Ohio, they require that you have a college education, a college degree. To, to be in law enforcement? It's not a bad idea because it, it requires discipline, right? Yeah. yeah. And you are graded. Uh, so it's, but the comments of the, the college or university professors are probably what's going to impress or depress a particular yeah. uh, police service from hiring you is like, Hey, this is yeah. a, a competent individual because we want people who are level-headed. We want good cops out there yeah and sure. read out the bad ones so i think that's not a bad idea so so you you did you get a job right away with the police department i did i i had uh i had two offers actually uh when i turned wow. 21 i applied both um in toronto and in durham which is uh where i was from and living at the time which they're they're side by side yeah. And Toronto was the first one to hire me. And uh, they, they said, we're, we're hiring you, but we've got a little bit of a freeze going on. So once we lift the hiring freeze, we'll give you your assignment. You can show up. In the meantime, I had applied in, in Durham, uh, which is a, a big jurisdiction. And they hired me right away. And I, I started a few weeks later. And by the time Toronto got a hold of me, I was already on the road. So, wow. yeah, yeah, it was very, very quick. Now, when, when you, and, and is Durham a big city like Toronto or? Well, we've got several uh, small communities within Durham. Um, oh, landscape okay. wise, it's, it's bigger. Um, and there, there were so many more opportunities because when I joined the police department, I became a detective very shortly after I joined and I got to work in the special victims unit. I got to work as a um, the detective uh, working in the sexual assault and child abuse unit. I became a hostage negotiator, international peacekeeper, all these opportunities. And I, I worked for it. I worked for it. So I, you know, when I see something, I go for it. Wow. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a tremendous career. I really, yeah. So 
I can't even imagine being a hostage negotiator. Like what, give me a real life scenario. What, what's a, what, when, like, I, when does somebody call in a hostage negotiator for what purpose? I, I, that's, that's out of my realm. Well, let's take a look at it uh, in two ways. Um, a hostage negotiator is also a crisis negotiator. And we're called when there's a hostage taking, and that could happen when a robbery goes wrong, a drug deal goes wrong, um, a domestic uh, violence situation where somebody, or, you know, in one situation where a distraught father grabs his child and, and, uh, you know, locks himself in the house. And uh, that's the kind of scenario that you have with the hostage takings. The other part of it is when a person is in crisis and they call or somebody calls on their behalf to say they're going to kill themselves. And so you are there to talk them into not doing it, just like you would when you're in a hostage situation and you're speaking to a hostage taker. You want to get to you know what's causing this and how you can help them out of the crisis that they find themselves in. So I've had everything from, you know, people uh, wanting to jump off a bridge, uh, take their lives, um, locked and barricaded in a home with a gun or pills. And I've had uh, those hostage situations where a robbery went wrong in a department store or in a variety store, um, domestic situations, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, And that's all in Canada. I thought I thought Canada was this really peaceful, quiet <laughs> rivers and mountains and snow, man. What we still live heck? in igloos, right, Ken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My igloo, I'm just brushing it off today. <laughs> no, I, I think though I do in my mind I see Canada as a very peaceful place, you know. Um, but I, I guess it's not necessarily. It's so, not it's not always, but we right. do have a, a lot of good things going for us here. Yeah, sure, sure. So so you um so you did that you were you were a police officer for and and you said you were 7 years before you became a detective. Um so what does that mean? You were out in a patrol car pulling people over for speeding, for domestic violence, situ- I mean what what yeah. what were you doing? The, for the first five years, I was in a patrol car uh, okay. working working with uh, other patrol people. Yeah. And, sure. uh, you know, the thing is, when I first joined the police department, Ken, I was put on a platoon of officers, uh, senior officers, and most of them were very disgruntled. They were angry. They had never uh, been promoted. Um, so I was surrounded by very negative people. And I would have to work with these officers for eight hours, a shift, wow. you know, night shift, day shift, afternoon shift. Yeah. And all I would hear is the department's going to, you know, going to mess you up and uh, all the people out here, you can't trust them. You can't trust anything. So when you're surrounded by all this negativity, it has a, you know, when you're put in a barrel of rotten apples and, and I, you know, like, I hate using that term, but very negative people can start to damage you, you know, when you're surrounded by that. And I went to my sergeant about a year into my service because I was starting to think, I'm going to quit. Like, I, this is not the life for me. Yeah. And I went to my patrol, uh, my, my sergeant and I said, put me in a car by myself 
and I will produce for you. But if you leave me with these officers, I'm afraid I'll, I'll probably end up leaving. So he did that. And I started to produce and I started to arrest people, uh, impaired drivers, people breaking into homes and going to those domestic calls and, and those robbery calls yeah. and everything. Uh, so I, I hated pulling people over and giving them tickets. I really I really didn't. And most of the times I would just say, hey, you've been speeding. So be careful. You know, we if I catch you again, that kind of thing. But I hated doing that. I wanted to catch the criminals. We used to have a warrant box in the back. Uh, this was before, you know, computers really. Yeah. I go through uh, all the warrants and Hey, this guy's wanted for armed robbery. And then I would hunt them down and I was good at hunting people down. I yeah. Love it. yeah. And so five years into the job way back when, uh, it was very unusual for someone to be moved from patrol to the detective office back then. Yeah. But I applied for it, and my staff sergeant backed me up as my inspector did. They said, hey, you are a big producer. We're going to back you up. So I, I ended up getting moved into the juvenile division as a detective, and then two years later, getting my detective's badge, my rank. So that was, uh, and that, you know, that, that was hard work, and that was just, I loved what I was doing. And I finally got an opportunity. I moved from the things that were affecting me, the, the guys with the negative attitude, I had to move away from them. I, 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 so I, I'm sitting here just chomping at the bit. I, cause I, <laughs> I, 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 I hate, I hate talking over my guests in any way, but I, I, I want, so I've, I've had this conversation with police officer, friends of mine, deputy sheriffs and, and what have you. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, why are you being so negative all the time? Stop. And they're like, what? And I'm like, stop being so negative. But then one day it occurred to me, I'm like, wait a minute. Your job as a law enforcement professional is literally, literally to find negative stuff. Like, like you're always on the lookout. If you're in a patrol car and you're driving around, you're not looking for people painting rainbows on the sides <laughs> of buildings. You're looking for, for people doing bad stuff. And so you're, I think that it's almost a natural thing for people in law enforcement. And you tell me if I'm wrong, because you obviously I'm, I'm not in law enforcement, but it, I think it's natural for, for how do you turn that off? Like you're out eight to 10 hours a day on patrol or, or doing your detective thing. You're looking for murderers and, 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 and every other kind of crime out there negative, um, how do you go home and turn that off? Well, I, I think it comes down to a state of mind, what you choose to do. Right. And I'm going to say that, uh, yes, a lot of officers become very negative because that's all they see. I like to see the good in people as well. Yes. And I like to look for that and actually remind people who have even done something wrong that there's still some good in them. That's what made me so successful as a detective. And as an interrogator, I got about 80% confessions from murderers, rapists, whatever. It's because of the way that I treated people. Two of the greatest lessons that I learned when I first became a police officer were this. Number one, we're more similar than we are different. And mm -hmm. that is a huge one because when we start to imagine that the person sitting across from us or the person next to us 
is more similar to us and we are different, then we can connect more easily. We can appreciate what they might be going through, especially when a police officer is, is in the picture. Imagine what this person must be feeling when they're being asked a question, when they're in trouble, whatever it is. So we're more similar than we are different. And the second thing was you get what you give. So if I give somebody dignity and respect, I'm more likely to get that in return. If I give somebody a bad attitude, I'm more likely to give that in return. Yeah. So learning those lessons early on, Ken, yeah. they helped me to, to really connect with people from all walks of life, criminals and uh, public alike. It just, I, I got to understand them or try to understand them. And I would walk in to talk to a criminal and say, listen, I'm, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not, I'm not here to find you guilty of anything. I'm only here to find out the truth. I want to get your story because yeah. as we know, Ken, everybody has a story, right? Amen. And we're not defined by our circumstances. So it's true. I, I think though, um, and I, I love, I love your answer. But I think that also puts you in a in a in a very um, not maybe not extremely unique, but it puts you in an in in a unique category in law enforcement because I don't yeah. think that everybody has the ability to um, to do that. I I do believe. I, I mean, I I know I've I have really good friends in law enforcement. I know that. You know, a lot of times they're, they're, you know, they're, they just had, there's a negative side that they, they can't turn off quite often, you know, and, and it sounds like you can, you can, you can turn it off and on, like, you know how to shut it down. I do. And I think, well, I, I'll rephrase that. I know that that's why I was so successful at my job Yeah, and why, and why I became a hostage negotiator when I asked, they said, you've got something different. Yeah. than most of the other guys. You want to go to the Middle East uh, during the war? Yep, you've got something different. So we're going to deploy you to the Middle East. You know, all these things Jeez. is because of the attitude that I brought into it. And you're right. right about being able to just shut it off and just say, hey, wait a minute, I'm going to look for the good here as opposed to always looking for the negative. Wow, that's incredible. We have Robert Brooker here. I don't know if you know Robert, but uh, he he... He, you may have arrested him at some point. I'm kidding, Robert. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Robert lives in the Toronto area somewhere. He said his father lives in Durham or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so, so, um, so you did this, you got into the detective unit. I don't know if it's um, called a detective bureau or unit or I, I, they call it a bureau here. Um, so you became a detective and how long, how long in total were you in, um, law enforcement? 31 years. I, I spent 31 years wow. in law enforcement and about wow. 20, yeah, 22 or 23 of those years were in the detective office. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So uh, you've seen it all. Oh gosh. Yes. Um, I, I was almost killed in the Middle East by terrorists. I, I fought uh, terrorists hand-to-hand -hand combat um, during the, the war, and I was what? almost killed. <laughs> so actually, a terrorist saved my life. And, um, what? Yes, a terrorist okay. saved my life. Okay, you got it. we can't. Come on, man. We can't skate past that. <laughs> Can you tell the story? 
Oh, I certainly can. Uh, back in 2004, the United Nations uh, reached out to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and asked yep. for more peacekeepers to go across the globe. Okay. And at the time, I was interested in peacekeeping and I applied to go to the Middle East. This is uh, Canada did not send soldiers to the war. We sent peacekeepers during that war. And this was the Iraq war. And I was selected to go. So when I went down, my job was to join the Jordanian International Police Training Center, the largest police academy in the world, who were stationed just outside of Iraq, and they were training Iraqi police cadets to go back to their country as police officers to defend their country. So that was my job. Now, again, uh, you know how I said we're more similar than we are different. Yeah. When I joined the academy, I was in charge of a criminal investigations uh, course, and I had different uh, instructors working with me and for me. And I imagined what it would be like if I were a cadet, a, an Iraqi cadet coming to the academy for the first time. Many of these people, these men, uh, they aged between 16 and 65, and they weren't supposed to be that young or that old, but Iraq was in such desperate need of cadets that they were pretty much scooping men off the road and sending them over for training. Some of these guys had never been away from home for one day. They'd never been away from their family. They were from small villages. Some of them were university educated. We had such, we had Sunnis, Shiites, and as it turns out, we had terrorists because it was so easy for the terrorists to infiltrate the academy that all they did was they lined up they signed a piece of paper, they got a police uniform, and they got sent to Jordan to wow. be trained. So we had Sunni Shiites and, uh, and terrorists in the classrooms. Jeez. Uh, yeah. So uh, I was made aware of this, and, and the academy was doing everything they possibly could to identify the terrorists. But my classroom was about 50 to 60 students um, in a small little classroom with very uncomfortable chairs and tables and such in the heat. Uh, and so I imagined what it would be like for them. So whenever I started my class, I, I put my hand over my, my heart and I said, listen, I had a, a translator as well, a Jordanian translator. They were amazing. And I said, I'm here. It's an honor for me to be here. And I, I'm truly grateful that I am here to share with you some of the ideas that I have about enforcement and police uh, work. And I want to make this as, as entertaining as, and as um, memorable for you as possible. So my name is Paul. I'm going to be sharing some information, and I hope that you will be sharing some information with me. So I started with, with a little bit of a spiel. And during the day, you can imagine, these guys had to get up at like 4.30 in the morning. And some of them had never uh, worked out before, but they were put through drills at 4.30 in the morning till about 6.30 in the morning. Then they would go and they would shower. They, they would have their breakfast. And then they would show up in my classroom at 8 o'clock. And some of them were ready to fall asleep. You know, they, their heads were ready to fall asleep. I had to make it entertaining. Now, yeah. I had done some acting, so I incorporated acting into my classroom. So I'd say, okay. Uh, you know, you're going to be the police officer today. You're going to be the bandit and you're going to be the witness. And then I would have them role play. About three o'clock in the afternoon, it, it occurred to me that America's Got Talent was a big thing. And, and we had a Canadian version of that. And I thought, yeah. I wonder if I could. Ah. This occurred to me. I said, 
Does anybody here sing? Does anybody in the classroom know how to sing or even tell stories? And I did this every class. Like I had the students for two weeks at a, at a time and then another group of, of uh, 60 would come in and then they would leave after two weeks. So I started this the very first day. Anybody know how to sing? And it's funny. I got Sunnis and Shiites and, and terrorists in the classroom and a couple of them are raising their hands. And uh, so I said, all right, let's sing, tell stories. Wow. And they would do that. And some of them were just incredible singers and storytellers. And the empty jugs of water, those five gallon jugs, yeah. they'd grab you know, those and start playing the drums on them. Can it was just amazing. So we would close our day off with this the song and storytelling. So I had Sunnis and Shiites and terrorists laughing and we all you know, were getting along. It was for that reason, one of the students in that, uh, in my classroom turned out to be one of the terrorists who's gonna be in charge of killing internationals later on. But he wow. used, I did not know he was a terrorist, but he would stay after class and he would talk to me and ask me all kinds of questions. He had a bodyguard. And uh, a few weeks later, after he had left my classroom and I had, I had gone from being in the teaching area to becoming an advocate and counselor, I applied for that job and yeah. I got that job and it was great. And then we were informed that there was going to be an attack on the academy and uh, that internationals were going to be killed. And a couple of days later, sure enough, early in the morning, um, I got to the academy with my uh, with my partner who worked in the advocacy and counseling division, we would get there before all the other internationals yeah. and we would go see the uh, director to uh, impress upon the director that certain cadets had to be redeployed back home. Some of them were suffering from mental disorders. Some of them were suicidal. Some of them had been sexually assaulted while in the academy. And so as we were leaving the director's office, as the sun was coming up, there were uh, several buildings. We were on our way back to our own building and about 40 of these cadets who were armed with rocks and sticks or whatever, they, they didn't have weapons other than that. They rushed us and they surrounded us. And then uh, my partner, I remember uh, my partner's name was Yadamo and he's about a foot taller than me. He was patting me on the head saying, this is gonna hurt little buddy. We knew that this was likely gonna be our last moments. Oh my God. Yeah. And the cadets, these insurgents who had gathered, uh, they, they started hooting and hollering and grabbing us and starting to beat us. And uh, we were fighting for our lives. Oh, my. And as the fight, yeah, I know. As the fight Dude. was going on, um, I remember getting stunned and, and hit and, and trying to defend myself. And I heard this one voice call out my name, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul. And he was shouting something in Arabic. And his voice was louder than the others. I heard my name. And I heard him shouting something. And all of a sudden the attack stopped and everybody moved away. And as I was trying to regain my focus, I'm looking for who called my name and why this had stopped, thank goodness. And it turned out to be this cadet from my classroom. Wow. Yep. And he walked up with the biggest smile on his face and he reached out and he he grabbed me by the arm and he pulled me up and he said, You and your partner, you you leave. And uh and and I was saved because of that and i oh, see that God. michelle has joined us hey michelle and robert i love michelle she's I amazing know she's so amazing isn't she so uh, wow 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 <clears throat> that is a moment that you could never forget ever 
I, I could never forget that because I can truly say that my life was saved by a terrorist and um, that wow. that terrorist actually likely paid for my life with his own because he had gone against his terrorist cell. His job was to kill me. And he, he in the presence of 40 witnesses, saved my life as opposed to taking it. And I know that, uh, you know, if you're a terrorist and you go back home and you say, hey, boss, uh, I, I didn't do what you said. In fact, I actually saved this guy. Well, you can imagine what a mob uh, would do. You know, a mob boss would say, well, yeah, you know, I think uh, we've got something for you, Charlie, <laughs> yeah. in the back room. The terrorists no are probably likely the same. <laughs> wow. That's yeah. crazy, man. So, so how, so you were in the middle of all this, you said for 31 years, the 31 years on, on the police service. Yes. And, and you go back to, um, you get through that. You, you go back to Canada. Eh? Yep. <laughs> see what yeah. I see what I did there. I, I love uh, it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and, and Bob, Bob Donnell, who's on here says, um, he loved your story about protecting Oprah. I can't let that one go either. I mean, that's kind of a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, how, and my wife is on here. She's blown away by you. Um, so talk about Oprah. What, where's that? Where's that coming into the story? Yeah, 2015, uh, Oprah Winfrey was coming to Canada uh, for, I think it was her very first appearance in Canada for a live event with Tony Robbins and Deepak Chopra and a bunch of other inspirational, yeah. motivational speakers. And at the time when I, I was right into acting and I was hanging out, hanging out with a... Um, uh, this woman who a very, very pretty woman. I had a crush on her actually. And uh, she was an actress and the two of us would hang around a lot together. And she, she got a hold of me. She says, Hey, Oprah Winfrey is coming. And would you, would you want to volunteer? I'm volunteering for that day. Um, do you want to volunteer with me? And I said, sure, why not? And so we both volunteered for it and they were given out the different assignments. And we we're both hoping to be in the auditorium where all the speakers would be. That's the yeah. place to be, right? Yeah. But a large group, and when they were handing out the assignments the day before, she was given the assignment of collecting and directing uh, people uh, from the entrance of, the, of, of this big community center yeah. um, on the third floor and nowhere near the auditorium whatsoever. And I was assigned outside the auditorium collecting tickets. So neither one of us were going to be able to, to see these speakers. Yeah. But I am a person who likes to create my own opportunities. I'm a negotiator. And so an hour before the event, before people started coming in, I walked into the auditorium. I started looking around and I saw the person, the, um, the woman who was in charge of, of the event. Mm. And, uh, and she was looking, she looked frustrated. And I went to her and I said, you look a little concerned. And she was one of the ones who had been given out assignments. And she says, yeah, she says, uh, I, I just don't know how I'm going to seed everybody. And I said, well, let me tell you a little bit about my background and I think I can help you. So I told her about what I did and, uh, how I think I could be of value to her in the auditorium. And she says, would you do it, Paul? Would you be there? I'll put you right in front of the stage. I said, no, I, I got it. I got you. Wow. And I said, and I said, do you, do you need anybody else? Because I have a friend who would be good at it too. 
because you look concerned. And so she said, yes, get your friend down here. So both of us ended up in the auditorium. Oh, my gosh. When the security people who were in charge of Oprah's security found out what I did, um, they came to me and they said, Oprah is going to want to walk through the auditorium. Now, 9,000 people were going to be seated in this auditorium. Jeez. And when they announced to me, they said, Oprah wants to walk through the auditorium. I said, wow. that's, not, that's not a good idea. That's <laughs> not because, and they said, well, we, we know, but we're going to announce to everybody to stay seated in their seats. And I said, good luck with that. Yeah. And so she's, they said, well, that's what she wants to do. We're wondering, would you walk beside her? We'll be behind you, but would you be beside her and just kind of be her bodyguard? And I said, sure. Yeah. And so that was my assignment. Now, when Oprah was talking, she did come down and I, I had met her before. And so I, I got by her side and I did not like this idea at all. Everybody in the auditorium before she appeared were told when Oprah comes down, she's going to shake a few hands and everybody remains seated in your chairs. And everybody went, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. We're going to be good adults. We're going to stay in our chairs. And I thought, right. no, they're not. <laughs> and so we got about a quarter of the way in about 2000 people in, you know, and, one person got up, started rushing her, and then 10 people got up and 20 people and 30. And next thing you know, we were surrounded by people all trying to grab her. And it was like a scene out of the uh, Kevin uh, Costner movie, you know, yeah. where, where I'm pushing people away, bodyguard. And, uh, and Oprah reached over and she grabbed my hand and she actually dug her fingernails into my palm. And she said, Paul, get me out of here. And I said, I got you. I got you. And so um, I managed to get her up on the stage again, unscathed, wow. unhurt. Wow. And uh, that was my my Oprah story. And, and I remember that night going, oh, wow, you know, that was that was pretty close. And so I went on Twitter and I said, oh, I got to work with Oprah Winfrey today. And I didn't put too many details, but Oprah tweeted me. And she said, oh, Thank wow. Yeah. She said, Thank you, Paul. Thank you for helping. And so that was my Oprah story. Now I could tell that in two different ways, Ken. The one way I can say <laughs> is, have I ever told you about the time that Oprah and I were holding hands in front of 9,000 adoring fans? <laughs> or I could tell you what really happened. <laughs> that's so funny, man. Wow, that's crazy. And so you were still in law enforcement, though. I had uh, left. I actually was, oh. uh, was no longer. I, I retired in 2010. Okay. And, okay. and this was 2015. Yeah. So uh, go back to 2010 when you decided to retire from law enforcement. What, why, why did you make that decision? And that's a very good question. And it comes down to this. I had done so much on the police department and I was in the polygraph uh, unit at the time. And I was also doing some film and television acting. And uh, I was I was married and I, I, I said, you know what, I'm getting so much work doing film and television and commercials. And I was on TV shows and all kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. I said, it's hard to balance both both these things. And I really want to go into acting full time. So I went to my wife at the time and I said, what would you think? I mean, the police department is going to give me uh, money to stay away. <laughs> I could, <laughs> I could retire. I could get, you know, my benefits and everything right, and, right. and, and get, uh, get to working in acting full time. And she said, no, that's 
it's a great idea. I left the, de the department to pursue a, an acting career, which I was doing very well at. Uh, but regrettably, um, just a few months after leaving the police department, my wife at the time announced that she wanted a divorce. Mm. So everything came falling down, so to speak. And I, I really mm -hmm. had to reinvent myself. I no longer had the steady income. Right I now I, you know, acting was once in a while, you know, so I, I really had to reinvent myself. And yeah. again, yeah. you, you're not, you, your circumstances don't define you. You define your circumstances. Yep. You respond in the best way that you possibly can. And for anybody out there, you know, who's trying to get through a breakthrough when, when stuff like this happens and you're knocked on your butt by life, it's your responsibility to get back up and do the very best you possibly can. Rocky talks about it. Life is not rainbows and sunshine. It can be a cold and nasty place. It will knock you to your knees and keep you there if you let it. Yep. But, but when I got knocked down to my knees there, you know, it was like I got hit by Rocky Balboa himself and I had to stand back up and say, okay, now what do I do? I got to right. dust myself off and now where do I go? I don't have my job, which I could have had if I would have yeah. known this was going to happen, but I had no idea. I had to reinvent myself, Ken. Yeah. So what, because I see, I'm going to go full screen with you here. I see there's books behind you there on the shelf. Yes. Um, I don't see my book up on that shelf. So oh, no, it's, it's just a little further down there, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> so you've written some books, right? And, yeah. and, and, you know, so talk about that. You you come out because, you know, my my wife and I are talking about making some big changes in 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 our lives and stuff. And, um, you know, it's always it's always scary, man. Like when when you go, I'm going to step out into something completely unknown to me, like completely unknown to me. Right. And so. Um, talk about that when you, when you had to go through that reinvention process and the fears and how you did it, what, what are the steps you took? Absolutely. Uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the defining moment in grade seven, where I started to believe in myself, it never left. Uh, there were times where I'd get knocked down and think, okay, now a little bit scary, but what do I do? Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I had to get work because uh, the lawyer's fees were costing a lot of money. And a friend of mine said, hey, they're looking for investigators uh, for the office of the independent police review director. And I, I got a temporary assignment there. And then in 2013, in 2000, uh, it was about 2013, I was in between jobs and thinking, okay, I'm, I'm looking for work. Now, what do I do? And I don't like to have time on my hands. I like to be doing something and I'm very creative. So many people had been telling me, Ken, you should write a book. You should write a book. You've got stories, man. You should write a book. You're so interesting. And I thought, I don't want to write a book. I don't want to write a book. <laughs> I had no intention to, of writing a book at all. Right. And I'm sitting in 2013 with nothing to do but look for work. And I hear this voice <laughs> in my head, write a book. I'm thinking, no, no, I don't want to write a book. It's a whisper, write a book. And I thought, okay, it keeps telling me I got to write a book. I have no idea what to write about. And I don't know how to write a book. So what am I going to do? I went to a bookstore and I picked up a book on how to write a book. I read the first 40 pages. I thought I knew it all. And I sat down on my computer and I just started writing. 
had no idea what was going to come out of me or what it was, but some of it was inspirational, motivational. It yeah. was about helping people to, you know, to beat self-sabotage and to get back on their feet. And I put personal stories in it. And uh, after about two years, because I wasn't committed as a writer in the very beginning, I had to hold myself accountable or get other people to hold me accountable. So I went to social media and I, on Facebook, I said, I'm writing a book. And I didn't think anybody was going to respond, but I got about 20 people, 20 of my, my friends who said, yeah. well, it's about time. So then I thought, okay, now I've got to finish. So I wrote the book and I self-published. And uh, about 40 people, can bought the book, you know, friends of mine, family, yeah. that kind of yeah. stuff. But then I get this, uh, this individual uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn. He was an editorial director for Harper Collins, one of the biggest publishers in the world. And he says, uh, I want to meet you for coffee. And so I met him for coffee and he pulls out my book and he says, I read this book. We want to publish it worldwide. And I said, yes, you do. And, <laughs> and he did. And it's been wow. published worldwide. So uh, then, you know, the, the process wow. was, was, okay, now I know how to do it. But I'm of the belief, Kent, that we are just about limitless. We're only limited by our own selves, by what we yeah. tell ourselves and by listening to those voices. When that yeah. voice came in and said, write a book, I could have said, I don't know how and I won't. But I decided to try it anyway. And it became like this, this big book that yeah. is helping so many people. I believe that at the end of my life, I do not want to be visited by the ghost of missed opportunities who said, we whispered in your ear to write a book. We told you to, uh, to apply for this job or to ask this person out or to go into film and television or to write this song. You never did it. Let me show you what it would have been like if you would have. I don't want to be visited by those spirits. I want to be yeah. visited by the spirits of rock and roll who say, dude, man, we gave you so much and you did so much. <laughs> that was amazing. What are you yeah. going to do next time when you come back? I mean, hey, man, I'm going to top it. So we can try so many things. And if we don't, we're letting ourselves down. A lot of people hear those whispers. And my friend, uh, uh, Glenn Morshower, um, who I met on Clubhouse, he my, says- He's my best friend. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, I my God. That. Well, you know what? he? You know what Glenn says about the power of whispers yeah. and how it has changed his life and saved yeah. his life. Yeah. And I believe that we have to listen to those whispers because they mean something. And there's so much potential in each and every one of us. But so many people are afraid, as you said, of yeah. taking that one step. What if I, I fail? Well, guess what? If you fail, it's okay. At least you tried. When those spirits visit you on your deathbed, they're going to say, hey, man, you tried that. That didn't work. But then you tried this and that did work. So yeah. take the spaghetti, as my friend would say, throw everything against the wall, see what sticks. But if you don't try, you'll never succeed. Um, yeah, I, I, I you, you've heard it. I, I mean, you've heard it. I, I, I had the privilege of of doing a show with Glenn, the Ken and Glenn show, and and we did that for a year or so. But you know, and you've heard it. Like you, you don't regret the things that you do at the end of your life. You regret the things that you didn't attempt that you didn't ever try you know and so 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 talk about you know i always ask this question and it's based on um your personal opinion 
the number one answer is fear. So you have to do better than that. Sure. <laughs> but, sure. but the, the question is, what do you think holds people back in life from two things? And I think they're related. Number one, real financial success. And number two, freedom and happiness. Like I, I do think they're all interlaced in some way. Um, what do you think is stopping people from, from getting to Paul? I feel like we all have this deep, deep desire. We have this knowingness that there's something bigger we're supposed to be doing. Um, most of us have that feeling and, but yet we'd never do it. We go to our graves, never having done the great things that we felt like we should be doing. What's stopping people, man? It's what we tell ourselves. It's self-sabotage, my friend. It's it's like when, when we're first born, life is empty and meaningless. What I mean is that we are empty vessels yep. and uh, we are so full of potential. And we are so like we've got confidence like you wouldn't believe yep. as a kid. We're going to yep. try everything. Then we start hearing this. You can't do this. You can't do that. This negativity. So that life is empty and meaningless actually yeah. starts to take meaning, but we attach the wrong meaning often to things. And right. we start to self-impose these beliefs that we can't accomplish the things that we set out to do because we were told no, or in some cases, like you were, uh, you can, told that you'd never amount to anything. A lot of people believe that, and they uh, regrettably carry those thoughts with them, and they give in to this self-sabotage. They don't negotiate their way out. They don't say, no, you're wrong. And this is the little voices that go on in our heads. So much of it comes down to what we tell ourselves because it's been said, and I truly believe this, if you tell yourself you can, you can. But if you tell yourself you can't, you can't. Because the conscious mind will say something to the unconscious mind and the unconscious mind will respond. Mm -hmm. So what is holding people back is what they're telling themselves, is the belief and the confidence that they may lack as a result of that muddied water that was poured into us when we were children and we grew up with rejection or whatever. A lot of us believe that we can't take the shots and make the shots. But as Wayne Gretzky, who was a famous Canadian hockey player, says, you always miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Yeah. What we tell ourselves. And it, yes, I'm not going to use that fear as the primary answer. My primary answer is what we tell ourselves. And a lot, the, the fear is secondary, the fear of failure, the fear of success, the fear of rejection, the fear of whatever. Yeah. But it comes down to what we tell ourselves and what we choose to believe. Choice is a six letter word. And what we choose to do means so much. Some of us choose not to even give it a shot. And that's, sure. that's sad. That is so sad. You know, I remember back in, um, and I, I talk about this quite often. My wife and I opened, when we first met each other, we worked, we started working together shortly thereafter, and, and we opened up our first office together. And everybody was getting paid working for us, except for us. And one day, this guy that worked for me, this big old boy, walks in. I'm on the phone, and he says, Hey, there's, there's a dude looking in the windows of your SUV out in the parking lot. And I'm like, 
you're bigger than me. Tell him to get the hell out of here. What, 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 right? Like, what do you, you know? And, and he's like, he has it blocked with his tow truck. And I was like, oh no, they're here to get my car. And apparently the bank likes it when you make your payment. So, um, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I can remember watching in front of a handful of employees, watching my car get towed away and, and cause you can't talk the repo man out of it. Like it just doesn't happen. No. And, and I remember feeling like, what's the point of going on from here? What's the point? This is the worst day of my life. I'm totally humiliated. Um, I'm a loser. I feel like a piece of crap and worm shit and pardon my language, but I felt horrible. And, and I know that especially during the pandemic suicide rates skyrocketed globally and, and a lot of people lost all hope. And so my question for you, Paul is, and you are probably the most qualified person ever on my show to ask this question. So I can't, I can't leave it out. If somebody called you and said, Paul, I'm done, man. I, I, I can't go on. I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to end it. I'm going to, I've done everything. My business is failing. My electrics being shut off tomorrow. My car was repoed last week. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm done what would you say to that person to help them get to the next moment? Well, you know, that's like a lot of the calls that I've been on before. Right. I know. That's why I'm like, I can't wait to hear how he answers this question. One of the first things is, Hey, I'm here for you. I'm here to help. And as much as you may not believe this in this moment, but this too shall pass, this will not be a permanent thing. And you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there, who will help, and I'm one of them. I'm here for you, so let me help you through this. And just remember, we've had things happen to us in the past. Just think of some of the things that you went through that were difficult before, and they no longer were after a period of time. Now you're facing something, and you don't see what's next. But let me tell you that this will pass, and that everything will work out, and I will help you to get to the next stage but you're not alone and don't give up. I know that you can do this. I know that you're strong enough. I'm here to help you. How can I help you? Wow. A lot of people see events and are very um, taken by them, but they, they have to look back into their past, I believe, to see that they've gone through hell before. Yeah. And, you know, it, the idea when you're going through hell is to keep going, right? Um, who was it that said that? When you find yourself going through hell, keep going. This too shall pass. A lot of things happen to us, but as we said, sometimes they happen for us because they can put us on a totally different, uh, things that happened to me, my divorce, my the abuse that I suffered, they happened for me too. Yeah. And so much has happened because I never gave up. And a lot of people who are facing difficult times right now have to imagine this is only temporary. It's not a permanent thing. Sometimes our messes become our messages. And some of the things that happen to us, they could be our next TED Talk. They could be um, some something that we experience so that we can then share with someone else who's going through a tough time. 
many of my experiences, the things that I, the hardships that I've gone through have become my messages. Yeah. They become you know, a, a Ted talk. I, I've done a Ted talk. Um, I've written a book in which I've, I've shared these stories is that we, we never ever should give up on life because life is not going to give up on us. And this is only temporary. What you went through in your dark moments where you were feeling like shit and, and they were, you know, towing your vehicle away. That's the past. Yep. You, 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 you learned something from that. One of the things that you learned was it was only temporary. It may have pushed you into a direction where you said, you know what? I've had enough of this. Yeah. I'm going to do this and I'm going to start making money for myself. This is how I'm going to do it. Because what we give, we get in return. And I, I said that a little bit. That was my, my second, uh, the, the second greatest lesson that I learned when I was in the police department. So if I'm giving out positivity to the universe, hey, I'm going to make money. And guess what? Money, you're welcome to come into my life. Yeah. When, yeah. I have that, when I have that, that spirit and that just that belief that nothing is going to stop me from getting what it is that I want, then the universe is going to say, I hear you. I hear you, and I'm going to make it happen. And a lot of people don't believe in this. They, they, they associate it to just, oh, exaggerate. No, I truly believe that if you have this belief in yourself, you can accomplish just about anything in this life. And it's the energy that we bring into the life that we get in return. So if our energy is low, we're going yeah. to expect very low things. If our energy is high and we believe in ourselves, lots of great things happen. Confidence is, you know, that courage and confidence to take the step forward, to try things, to take risks. Those are the things that define us. And those are the, when most successful people in the world, we take a look at them, they may have failed 20, 30, 40, 50 times, but they never gave up. It's like the Rocky thing that says, yeah. it doesn't matter how many times you're knocked down your, to your feet. What matters is how many times you get back up, how much you can tape it, take and keep moving forward. And I truly believe that, Ken. You can probably tell I'm a little passionate about this, right? I, I Yes, man. And I, I'm, I feel the same exact way, though. I, same exact way. This has been incredible. Let me ask you this. Where can before I don't want to forget this. Where where can people um, follow you, find out more info, et cetera, et cetera? If you Google my name, I'm all, all over the internet. Um, do, you have, do you have a website? I do. It's jpaulnadeau.com. www.jpaulnadeau.com. I also have a podcast called Inspire Us, and it's inspireus.ca. Uh, that's okay. the website for the podcast, but mine is uh, jpaulnadeau.com. I'm sure the podcast is linked from there, right? Yes, it is. Yes, okay. it is. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. Uh, Paul, this has been absolutely phenomenal. You are, um, I, and you're all over social media too, right? Yes. Um, I know you're on clubhouse for sure. So, yeah. um, yeah. um, you guys, everybody watching first off, make sure you shared this out. If you haven't, you can redeem yourself now and go <laughs> ahead and share it out. Um, but share this out so the world can hear this, this amazing message from, from Paul Paul, thank you for coming on and sharing today, man. You're incredible. I, I'm I'm so grateful to call you a friend and and um, wow, it's been incredible. Well, thank you, Ken, and I'm 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 privileged to call you a friend as well. And I absolutely admire the work that you're doing. And to all your listeners out there, 
it is, uh, it's a mindset, uh, you know, yeah. success really is a mindset. And my, I guess my parting message would be to challenge your negative narratives and turn them into something positive. And once we start doing that and believing in ourselves, there's nothing that can hold us back from getting what it is that we want. Ken, it's been an absolute privilege and I thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate you, man. You're awesome. So everybody watching, my wife, everybody watching, make sure you go to J. Paul Nadeau and your social media links are on there as well, Paul? They should be. Yeah, they should be. If you, um, yeah, J. Paul, uh, J. Paul Nadeau is uh, my Instagram. That's my Instagram handle. That's my Facebook handle. It's, awesome. Yeah, everything. Awesome. Everybody, make sure you go follow Paul on all of his social medias. Go to his website, explore, check him out. And until next time, we will see you all later. Paul, thank you so much. Hang tight. I'm going to end the live stream. Everybody have a fantastic day. Go out and make the world a better place for someone else today. Talk to you later.